Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And we are back with a frequent guest on the show, our best, one of our best Albany analysts to discuss the end of the Cuomo era and the beginning of the Hochul era. That is newly minted first female governor of the great empire state of New York. We are here with the Honorable Craig Johnson, former state senator of the 7th District of New York, North Shore of Long Island, and uh, now the uh, the owner, chairman, CEO of Long Point Advisors. Craig, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, always great to be here. Hope you're having a great summer. Oh, yes. And uh, as we close summer, I'm definitely having a better summer than uh, Andrew Cuomo did. So, uh, so Craig... Tell us what's going on. Uh, tell us about the the end. I mean, who would have thought that Andrew Cuomo would make it to the end of his term? Who would have thought that he would not be – he would walk away with $18 million in the bank? And, uh, you know, give us an assessment as a as a Albany insider, uh, you know, what this means to Albany and what the beginning of a new era. This is the second time in a in not-so-distant future that we had a governor essentially uh, have to resign uh, with the lieutenant governor – uh, taking their place. Yeah, I, look, I I was there in 2008 when uh, Governor Spitzer resigned and uh, Lieutenant Governor David Patterson uh, became the governor of our, of our state. You know, very different scenario, very different situation. I think, you know, Kathy Hochul is going to do a really great job. Um, I think that, you know, her experience in government is really going to lend uh, itself to her her role as a town elected official, she is an expert at retail politics and she likes it and she's very good at it. And I think that is something that people are going to like to see is she enjoys the give and take of both the local politics, but also local governing. And I think, in my opinion, you're going to see that quite quickly uh, come into play when she's dealing with the members of the legislature and having to negotiate a budget, dealing with the legislature when it comes to legislation that has to be signed before December 31st. And I think you're going to see it in her efforts to run for election uh, come you know next year. I mean, look, the primary is in June. The designating conventions are in February. I mean, it's a fast calendar. She does have the benefit, unlike you know David Patterson in 2008, when the resignation occurred right before a budget had to be done in the, in, during the middle of a fiscal crisis. You know, she, on the one hand, it's quiet time, a little quieter in Albany, so it allows her to get her ducks in a row and, and really form a govern a governing. Uh, body, you know, a cabinet, so to speak. She's going to take 45 days to evaluate um, the current commissioners and deputy commissioners in, in, gov- in government to see who will stay and who will go. Um, I mean, she does have to tackle COVID, and I think today's announcement regarding the mask mandate you know, for schools is a, is a strong start for her. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, her style as comparing and contrasting it to the you know, former governor's style when it comes to things like infrastructure projects. You know, because you can't, you can't take away the fact that Andrew Cuomo really made a positive impact when it comes to, you know, rebuilding you know, certain areas of New York. I mean, go into the Moynihan Station, go into the new LaGuardia, you know, go over the, you know, the, the Mario Cuomo Bridge, so to speak. There are a lot of areas that saw a mass improvement in, in terms of its infrastructure with Governor Cuomo in charge. That being said, you know, with everything surrounding it, he made the right decision to step down. He made the right decision to move on. You know, we'll see what Andrew Cuomo does in the future. But I think right now the, the future is now for Kathy, Kathy Hochul. And I'm confident she's going to do a very good job. And her selection today of Brian Benjamin as lieutenant governor uh, is a strong choice and one that I think New Yorkers should be very excited about. 
Okay, so I've got a host of questions, but I'm going to start with this. Uh, Kathy Hochul didn't just pick an LG. She didn't just do a mass mandate, COVID, easiest thing. We'll get to Brian Benjamin in a second. She also acknowledged that 12,000 more New Yorkers died of COVID than the Cuomo administration was willing to countenance or willing to accept I mean, it's almost like if if one recalls that President Trump way back when didn't want to let Americans off the Diamond Princess or whatever other boat that was because he didn't want to juice the stats. Here we have 12,000 New Yorkers who seem to have died of COVID and that the Cuomo administration uh, suppressed those numbers. I mean, maybe it was for the book. Maybe it was for something else. Maybe it was now I understand the strategy of going ahead and, you know, ripping off that Band-Aid. But won't this investigation or won't this scandal kind of survive into the next administration? Look, I, I, I don't know if it will or, or it won't. And the fact is, is that she promised. I mean, she's keeping Howard Zucker after all. He, she didn't fire him yet. You know, she look, you know, you have to have a doctor to be the health commissioner. She's keeping Howard Zucker. And, you know, she's indicated all commissioners will have 45 days. She promised transparency. She delivered transparency. I think we have to give her the benefit of the doubt and, and allow her to govern the way she's going to govern it. Look, at the end of the day, you know, the, the my understanding, and I don't profess to have, you know, I don't play a role in this. I, have, I really, you know, don't have a, a horse in this race, so to speak. But, you know, the U.S. Justice, US Justice Department indicated they were not going to continue an investigation on this particular issue. You know, obviously there is the Eastern District of New York is a, or the Southern District, one of the two offices are, are currently conducting an investigation. That investigation will wind its way through. But, uh, you know, I think what we have to do is clearly move on from, you know, whether 12,000, you know, are COVID deaths or not COVID deaths, but recognize that we still are in the middle of a pandemic. We have a Delta variant that we have to address. We just had the FDA, you know, certify, um, you know, the, the uh, Pfizer vaccine, which will allow a lot of people to, you know, now take the step of mandating vaccinations. Uh, we have a situation where schools are about to start uh, here in New York State, and you have children from five to ages five to eleven who can't get vaccinated yet. And you know, quite frankly, and I have my issues with Bill De Blasio, but I agree with him wholeheartedly that you know why isn't the FDA taking the step right now to uh, allow eleven-year-olds to get vaccinated? I mean, what's the difference between an eleven-year-old and a twelve-year-old other than one year? You know, if I'm eleven and a half or eleven and eleven months, why can't I get a vaccination when I'm going into school? So. I think at the end of the day, you know, she promised transparency, delivered on transparency on, on day one of her administration. And let's move it forward. You know, the investigations will, you know, investigations will continue. The assembly is indicating they're going to continue their investigation on the impeachment. You know, they may include the investigation in the nursing homes. Everybody has a right, you know, to have their day in court, so to speak. And so we'll let the investigators play out. And that shouldn't stop you know, New York State from governing. Kathy Hochul will continue to govern and move the state in the right direction. So let's talk about Brian Benjamin for a second. There were a number of, of uh, I guess the expectation was, of course, she would pick somebody from New York City. And the expectation was, of course, it would be somebody well to the left and it would be somebody of color. Uh, but uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is everybody reminding the public that when Brian Benjamin was running for city controller, he was... Uh, in favor of defunding the police. Now, that was not necessarily the Kathy Hochul, the upstate 
Kathy Hochul the, from Erie County, who at one time was a relatively conservative Democrat, at one time refused to allow uh, driver's license for uh, non-documented aliens, at one time uh, had won a pretty conservative uh, congressional seat. So, look, is it, are we seeing a uh, repeat of Kristen Gillibrand here? No, look, I think Brian Benjamin is a a very strong choice. I I happen to know Brian for a number of years. Um, You know, I've been particularly impressed in his work in representing his district in the New York State Senate. I mean, certainly it's very easy to politically make the statement that Brian Benjamin supports to fund the police. I don't believe he does. Um, But, you know, I'll leave the caricatures and the characterizations to political, you know, political consultants and political strategists. Well, it's not whether you he he tweeted it. I mean, he put out a statement saying he supports the funding of the police. I think I think I think I think the statement was a lot longer and a lot more nuanced. But look, okay. Okay. That as may. Look, look, putting putting that aside, I think Brian has also demonstrated some some positions, you know, as a member of the state legislature that demonstrate some more moderate roots to him. No one would call Brian Benjamin a progressive. I think that, you know, is he a center left politician? Sure. I think, though, at the end of the day, I think what Kathy Hochul is demonstrating is that she's become more of a centrist. She announced today or in a, in a New York Times interview that she's a Biden Democrat. That's a good Democrat. Look, at the end of the day, what what Kathy Hochul and what Brian Benjamin have to do is lead New York. You know, we can't, you know, there's a time for politics and there's a time for governing. And unfortunately, what we've seen, you know, over the past decade or two, especially since I've left office, is that no one get, no one's given a chance to govern. Everything has to be political. I think that it's important for New Yorkers to recognize is that Kathy Hochul is going to bring her life experience, her experience of, you know, running a town, uh, you know, being part of a town council in upstate New York, uh, being a lieutenant governor, being a member of Congress, you know, a short period of time, but still a member of Congress and bring all those experiences, you know, into the governor, the governor's office. And I think what you're going to see with Brian Benjamin is his experience you know, his tremendous education, you know, from Brown University and Harvard University, you know, his, his time on Wall Street. And we're going to see, you know, I think a governing style between the two of them that's going to really move New York forward. And there'll be a time for politics. Look, do, do I think that, you know, Kathy Hochul will, will receive a, a primary from the left? You know, probably. And, you know, as somebody who is a Democrat from more of the center right, uh, as my reputation has been, you know, I would certainly, you know, be eager to see, you know, the Democrats push back against the progressives. I think that, you know, the D, what the DSA has done to the Democratic Party is a lot what the Tea Party has done. Uh, and, and quite frankly, that a lot of the Trump, Trumpistas has done to the Republican Party. And that doesn't help the center. And the center, whether center left or center right, is a way to govern because it, it is about finding compromise. It is about finding, you know, solutions to problems. And I'm confident that Kathy and that Brian, I'm sorry, Governor Hochul, and I don't know if he's been sworn in yet, but soon to be or Lieutenant Governor designee Brian Benjamin will be a good ticket and, and will help New York move forward uh, from the Cuomo uh, administration. Well, let, let's talk about the politics since you talked about potential for a primary from the left. Um, you know, do do Democrats see this now as as a potential? I, it's not an open seat, but do they see? You know, Kathy Hochul as as vulnerable because you know she's so new. She doesn't have. She certainly doesn't have that name recognition. She certainly isn't Andrew Cuomo as far as their her statewide profile, uh, despite having you know traveled for for quite some time. Uh, admittedly, she she has said that she and Cuomo were not close. Um, but uh, 
you know, there's there's no I mean, I could certainly count probably it would take me two hands to count the number of Democrats and prominent Democrats who are looking get, to get into this race. Uh, first among them, potentially Tish James, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, Jumani Williams, uh, Steve Ballone. I mean, let me you know, I can go. I could go on. Could. So. You know, not, it what? Not Craig Johnson. Let's be very clear. Okay. Yes. Okay. We're going to make news right now. Craig Johnson will not be running. <laughs> will, Craig, what will you be a running mate? No. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, well, tell us what the field looks like. Look, I, I think I think you identified the field. I mean, there are other names that are out there: Tom Swazi, Congressman Tom right. Swazi, Comptroller Tom Tanapoli. There are a number of people who. Um, you know, have their names bandied about because they are prominent and, and they have played a role um, in New York. So I expect somebody to run in a primary. I, I think that no one expects Kathy Hochul to get a free run, so to speak. But I would caution them that you have an incumbent governor, somebody who is going to find the balance between left and right, who's probably going to govern, you know, as a centrist or you know in the mold of, of, of joe biden and calling yourself a biden democrat i think despite the fact that in primaries you know it, the, the idea is the left seems to come out more often i think that the unions are going to be very supportive of kathy hochul and i think that that is going they're going to be excited about kathy hochul and supporting kathy hochul so i expect a primary I think it's too early to say who. I think people are still trying to figure things out. I think things will shake out probably after this November. Um, and the, I don't think there's anybody running right now in a November election that's going to run in, uh, in 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 January, like Eric Adams or Brad Lander or you know anybody you know running a countywide in, in a county like George Latimer or Laura Curran. But I think well, jo- well uh, Giovanni Williams is running. Oh, I'm sorry. He's unopposed. You're right. That, that That's a fair point. Um, but I forgot about that. <laughs> it shows you what I know. But, look, it's the, it's uh, New York City after all. So let's uh, give you a pass. We're the suburbanites, right? But look, I think that we will see more things come about, you know, November 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th. You'll start seeing, you know, things trickle out a little more. I mean, the real telltale sign is what does Kathy Hochul report in her campaign filings in January? Um, and if it's really strong, that may cause some people to be a pause. Because look, at the end of the day, in a 22, Tish James would have to give up her seat. Tom Swazi, if he were to run, would have to give up a seat. If Tom DiNapoli were to run, he'd have to give up a seat. So that's a, you know, as a, as a former elected official, that's something that weighs on you if you want to give up, you know, a safe seat um, to take a shot at an incumbent governor. And she is the first female governor in New York State. That is historic. And that is, I think, going to be very helpful for her in her ability to raise money between now and January. Okay, so let's talk for a second about, well, you know, we talked about centrist Democrats. You said a Biden Democrat. And, uh, you know, I guess we could, good opportunity transition to Biden and what everybody is thinking about, which is, uh, I, I'll call it a debacle right now, not necessarily in policy, but certainly in execution. Our exit from Afghanistan still going on, but certainly no American can be happy with the pictures they see and what and how this the lack of planning, lack of foresight, lack of anticipation. 
uh, and the like, um, whether or not you felt that it was that it was, oh, the right thing to have this precipitous withdrawal, whether or not you blame Trump. Um, I don't think anybody wants to see America being humiliated in this way so much. So I know this is a little bit of my preamble, but I'm, I'm frustrated by it. I'm angry about it uh, that, uh, you know, Joe Biden's honeymoon type of uh, approval rating has taken a walloping. And, uh, you know, Biden, this was supposed to be the A-team. This was supposed to be experienced people. This is what they campaigned on as being the group that, you know, was different from the Trump administration that, you know, was inexperienced, et cetera. Uh, did they oversell? Did they ignore? I mean, what? I mean, Craig, I mean, let's let, let's be honest here. Let's call it like it is. What's what's going on? How did the guy with so much foreign policy experience get this one so wrong? Look, I, I think the question is, what did he get wrong? And what do what is actually going on over there? You know, at the end of the day, it is certainly frustrating to see the lack of or let me put it this way, the, the, the chaos that seems to be coming out of Afghanistan in order to evacuate both American citizens, holders of green cards, and also our Afghani allies who, who supported us during that time. And everybody wants to try and accomplish that goal. You know, it, it's funny, Michael, I was talking to friends over the past couple days and nobody, and you know, and I'm talking multiple friends, Nobody's talking about Afghanistan. Nobody's talking about the photos. Nobody's talking about, you know, what's going on. It's just not, honestly, it's not in their mindset. I think I think a lot of what's being driven is being driven on Twitter, Facebook, and social media. I think, at the, I think more Americans are concerned about COVID. More Americans are concerned about Delta. More Americans are concerned about table issues. I mean, to the point- High gas where, prices. To the point where, and that's not, to the point where the Republican House and you know House Republicans in their strategy sessions are talking about inflation and not Afghanistan because I think they recognize that the voting American voter at the end of the day is not going to decide whether or not to vote for a member of Congress in 22 based upon what's going over in Afghanistan. More has to be done, and you're right. I think that there was a there's been a failure. You know, among the community, among the communication chain, there was definitely a failure of, you know, being locked in. And the fact is, is that I mean, this is the, the, the facts are that the prior administration locked the current administration into a deal with the Taliban. And look, you can't negotiate with the Taliban. I mean, that you, you can't negotiate with terrorists. They're terrorists. You know, they're not ISIS or ISIS-K, whatever they are, but they are a terror-sponsored organization that is now running this country. You can't negotiate with them. You know, Donald Trump and, and, Popeo, and Pampio or what, you know, thought, uh, Pompeo thought they could. Biden got locked in. And the real fear, I think, was that if they don't abide by it, they were already losing on the ground. It was going to become, it could be worse. So they looked at it as what's, it's, it's the war, you know, how do we make the best out of a bad situation? The problem is, is that they were so woefully unprepared that they got stuck in a situation on the ground that did not prepare them for the massive amount of Afghanistan, you know, Afghan, Afghanis to, or Afghanistan residents to want to get on the flights. I mean, that's a lack of preparation by our State Department, our, our foreign service officers on the ground and in Washington, D.C. to start preparing these folks. It was literally like, here we are. Let's get let's get everybody on the planes. It's it's not Saigon. 
I mean, and one of the things that, you know, people don't recognize, people want to compare what happened in, in Vietnam. The fact is, is that the United States, when they evacuated Saigon in 1975, did so under shell fire. I mean, you know, the North Vietnamese were attacking Saigon. It wasn't a negotiated, a negotiated, uh, you know, pullout. They, they were, they had tanks coming in. I mean, they, the, the, you know, the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese had launched an offensive to take Saigon. This is a different situation. You have people on the grounds that are uncontrollable. I mean, at checkpoints, you have Taliban, you know, Taliban warriors are not listening to a leadership structure. There probably isn't a leadership structure. So you have these situations going on. I think what has to be recognized and what really has to be thought through is what happens on August 31st. Because that's, right. the, that's the deadline. Right, because then you might actually see open warfare. We actually right. might see shooting. We might see Americans being killed. And, and the question is, you know, what are we going to do about anybody left on August 31st? The other thing we have to think about, and I think this is very important, and I don't have an answer, but I'm assuming that people, hopefully people are thinking about this, is, yeah, we need to get as many of our friends and allies who helped us in the fight into the United States. We got to make sure they're screened because I do have a worry that it's not hard for somebody to claim on the ground, you know, I was an interpreter with the Ranger unit at Bagram Air Force Base. Let me get on board. When in fact, that individual may not necessarily have that background and maybe something else. I'm not saying they're an infiltrator. I'm not saying any of that sort, but we got to make sure that in the screening process, is done correctly. So we make sure we let in the right people, you know, the folks who fought with us, who helped us, make sure we're able to protect them and not just simply letting in individuals who may not have actually earned the right to come into the United States through this process. I think that's important. So one other note, uh, I guess, from a Middle East perspective is uh, new Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett visited Washington today, uh, tomorrow, this week, and uh, you know, clearly, from your perspective, you know, do you see this as being a, a fresh start, new relationship? I know everybody thinks about the fact that, well, you know, it's not BB, but of course, Bennett is not, his politics are not exactly to the left of BB. Um, and, you know, that, that relationship carry on forward. I mean, my question, I guess, for, is more from uh, how does, if you're the White House, how do you play that relationship? The Israeli government being a wide ranging government, if, you know, is, it's not right wing, it's not left wing, it's kind of everything. And, yeah. you know, do, do they want, I mean, do the Democrats, does the White House want to fix their perception? Or maybe they don't think it's an issue. Um, but uh, do they want to fix the perception that they're not, uh, that they've kind of, the Democrats have slipped on being uh, pro-Israel enough? You know, look, and I say this as somebody who, and I'm sure we've talked about this, my son spent three months in Israel earlier this year playing with the Israeli National Lacrosse team in the Israeli Lacrosse program. Uh, happened to be, you know, a number of times had to go into air raid shelters and li literally left five days before the violence broke out. Um, and we were lucky enough to get him, get him home and he was not stuck in, in the area where rockets were raining down. I, I think that the Democratic Party, and I say this as a, a centrist Jewish Democrat, uh, we do have a, pro a, a problem with a, a segment of our, support, of our party members who have, have bought into... Uh, the BDS movement and have bought into an anti-Israeli movement. Uh, and that's troubling to me. And I think that there are folks in the White House who recognize that and, and understand the need. I think it was more difficult when you had somebody like Bibi Netanyahu who 
you know, again, in early in his career, did some good things, but stayed too long. Uh, and certainly, you know, ra you know, the corruption allegations raised a whole bunch of problems. I think this new prime minister allows for a reset. I think it's exciting what he was able to put together in terms of a coalition. I'm hopeful that this coalition can continue, to, that can, can survive. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, by him coming to the United States, really, you know, what's a couple months after he became prime minister, it's like three months after he's become prime minister, I think is a real indication that there is a seriousness on their part to have a reset. And I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will embrace that reset and continue because Israel is our staunchest ally in the Middle East. They are the bulwark of democracy in that region. And that's something we have to continue. And so I'm hopeful that we are going to see the reset. And I'm really, I really would urge, you know, my friends in Washington to push back on, on some of these members of Congress who really do say things that, that some will claim are bore on anti-Semitism. I think they are blatantly anti-Semitic. And I think that it's something that has to stop uh, and that we need to do something about it. Well, it's not just in Washington. We've actually seen it from some of the members of the New York State Legislature. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty it's pretty shocking out there. And a lot of that, you know, even starts at a local level in certain places. It's the kind of thing we have to be vigilant about. And, you know, I think I've, one of the things, you know, Craig, as we wind up, you know, you, you've, you've thoughtfully described yourself as a centrist, moderate Democrat, um, you know, I, and talked about the need for moderation in politics. And I think both parties, you know, can learn from some moderation. Um, there's no question that the Republicans have some interesting and colorful characters on their on their right flank. Uh, certainly some who have trafficked a little bit in some anti-Semitic tropes. I don't want to put any denial of that on the table. But I guess um, one thing I want uh, to hear from you, I guess, from the self-described centrist moderate Democrat is where do the do the moderates survive the midterms? Um, you know, in yeah. in, co in Congress. I mean, a lot of these moderates, you know, they 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 actually this week staged a protest in a way to try and block the uh, three point five trillion dollar budget package of human infrastructure, um, and they and they ended up caving. Uh, so, yeah. I, will they will they be able to survive? Uh, you know, what is expected generally to be the you know the midterm run against the incumbent party. Yeah, I, I, I certainly, it, it's interesting. Moderates in the Senate run the Senate and moderates in the House, off, you know, oftentimes get rolled. I think that, you know, Josh Gottheimer and, and the 10 that put up a pretty admirable pushback against Nancy Pelosi did the best that they could, quite frankly. Um, and my hope is that they do get the infrastructure, the real infrastructure vote before that $3.5 trillion budget package, which I think is way too much and will cause more harm than good, quite frankly, um, to a lot of folks here in, in New York. I think, you know, we, I think our New York members need to think long and hard before they support that, quite frankly. That being said, going back to your immediate, immediate point, Michael, I mean, I look back at what happened in 2010 when, you know, it, when we, when the House lost, when I lost my seat, when Brian <laughs> Foley lost his seat in, 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 Suffolk, in Suffolk County on the state legislative level, right, a lot man. of models. And they lost 61 house, house seats. 
Exactly. And I think, and that was over the ACA, ACA, which by the way, still remains in place. Right. And so there's a, there's a school of thought that says, well, you know, vote for this, it'll happen. You lose your seat, but you're going to do so much more good than, you know, by being out of office. And I'm like, well, that's easy for, you know, someone with a safe seat to say, you know, if I'm a moderate and I'm trying to make sure that moderate policies get passed, you know, you're finding the common ground that the Senate did a, the right thing with that, you know, trillion dollar hard infrastructure package, because that was a true compromise. You brought the right, the left together, you, the center formed, and they, and they came up with a solution um, that, that New Yorkers can be, you know, Americans can be proud of. Um, I, I think that folks have to pay close attention. I am certainly worried that there are uh, moderate members across the country who are going to face very tough races. Um, a number of them may get redistricted out, you know, because we do have redistricting. There may be some redistricting here in New York State that you may see a Republican member or two face uh, new new lines that may be make it more challenging. But look, I think that while on the one hand, the House, certainly the numbers don't look great for Democrats, I think the Senate looks better for us, you know, for Democrats. I think that you know, I think Herschel Walker is going to be a gift for uh, Senator Warnock. I think that um, you've got opportunities in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. And if, you know, Ron Johnson, no relation, runs for re-election in Wisconsin, I think that it's, you know, there's, you know, real opportunity. Whereas I think we hold in Arizona with Mike, uh, Mark Kelly. I think we hold in Nevada. I mean, I think they're, they're, I think the map helps us. So you could see a real run on moderates in the House. And I think you could see moderates, you know, hold in the Senate. And then you have a divided government for another two years. And then 2024 shows up. And do we see the possibility of a Republican governor in New York State in 2022? No, no I think, no. Uh, I mean, look, I like... Lee not Bell. even in the not even in the year potentially where there could be Republican pickups. No, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. I mean, look, I, I personally like Lee. I think he's a nice guy. I got to know him when I left the Senate. He was in the Senate in the House. You know, on a personal level, I, I like the guy. He made one big, terrible political miscalculation. A miscalculation, a, a terrible error when he voted not to certify the election in January, and, and that is viewed by independent voters as a non-starter. When he did a vote that said that Joe Biden did not, should not be certified as president of the United States, that disqualifies him. And I think voters in New York are gonna disqualify him. Now, are you saying there's another Republican that's gonna pop out and you know run for, for governor? You would know better than me. But I still think that this state is a pretty solid blue state. It's not the same state as it was when George Pataki defeated uh, Mario Cuomo. And quite frankly, Kathy Hochul or the Democratic nominee, whomever that will be, will be in a lot stronger position um, than uh, Mario Cuomo was after three terms back in 1994. So unfortunately, Michael, I think my side is going to win on that one. Well, I see a very messy Democratic primary, wide open Democratic party, lots of mudslinging at each other. Uh, the perfect type of environment for Lee Zeldin to kind of come in there. Of course he He's do. raising a huge, raising significant amounts of money, having uh, having good feels, a lot of enthusiasm. But we shall see. I think what happens in 2021, actually, in the suburbs here will be very instructive. Craig Johnson, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. We are out of time, unfortunately. But thanks for the view from a moderate middle of the road, Democrat, to the extent that they still exist. Uh, we have it right here, Craig Johnson. And that's it for this week here on Spig Glass, here on the Knockham Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.